Well, hey, Hub City, it's good to be with you today. And I don't know about you, I'm a bit of a shopper. Uh, I love the hunt for a good bargain, a good deal. And one adage that always rings in my brain when I'm, I'm out purchasing things is you get what you pay for, right? Uh, one thing that I recently bought, I bought this wonderful pair of flip-flops from Old Navy. Guess how much I paid? Hmm? $2, right? That's a dollar per flip and a dollar per flop. Very great deal, but you get what you pay for because look at all that great arch support, right? Uh, none, basically, is what you're getting there. Uh, what you've also got is this little piece of plastic here. doesn't want to conform to the top of my foot, but instead just wants to make a nice blister on the top of my foot. You get what you pay for. For a $2 pair of flip-flops, sure, they get you from the house to the pool, but you might pay for it in other ways. And, and, and there's all kinds of different things. Sometimes when we're making big purchases, little purchases, we're weighing about Am I going to compromise on this? Is this important to me? Is this not a factor? Is it a factor? Is it not negotiable? What is it, right? I'm a man who loves sushi, but I'll tell you what, I don't buy sushi at a, great, a, a gas station. Why? It may be convenient. It may be cheap, but I'm not paying for that consequence later on. That's going to hurt. Uh, there's all kinds of different things, and as we talk about today, the story of David that we're going to look at, we're going to see this principle that I think is going to parallel that idea of you get what you pay for. And it's this idea of compromise, and that compromise leads to consequences. As we look at this life of David and this moment in David's life, he makes a moment and a choice of compromise, even though he still, at his core, has this heart of commitment. So we're going to be comparing commitment and compromise. Now, all summer we've been looking at David's life, the ups, the downs, the trials, the triumphs. And last week, where we left off to this week and where we're picking up is a huge jump. And so I'm going to check in with you with a, a quick update on some things that happened in between this, this section. And I'm going to do this as fast as I can in about 90 seconds. We're going to put 90 seconds on the clock. We're going to have the scripture chapters on the bottom. So you can go back and read these if you'd like to read more of his story. But I'm going to quickly hit through this as fast as possible. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Ready? Deep breath. Go. To escape the cat and mouse game between Saul, David goes into enemy territory of the Philistines, thinking that Saul would never look to find him there. Driven by fear, Saul runs to witchcraft for spiritual answers. God intercedes in this moment, talks to Saul, talks about his disobedience, and prophesies about his upcoming death. Meanwhile, David is being ostracized by the Philistines because they, frankly, just don't trust him. He was a part of the enemy, and so by him being ostracized, it actually keeps him from having to go to battle with the Philistines against the Israelite army. So the Israelites and the Philistines go to battle. Saul sees that there's an impending defeat taking place, and so Saul actually takes his own life. In the course of that same battle, Jonathan, David's best friend, loses his life, as well as Saul's other sons that he has, two of Saul's other sons. David finds out this news. He's mourning. He's depressed. He's broken up about it. And not just because Saul is dead, but because his best friend Jonathan is gone. David has been now anointed and appointed the king of Judah, a section of the kingdom of Israel. Meanwhile, one of Saul's other sons, Ishbosheth, becomes the king over the rest of Israel. So David just gets this small little section. Ishbosheth and David go back and forth as rivals for seven years, and they go back and forth. David has a couple of guys that go under the radar and go and actually murder Ishbosheth in his sleep in the middle of the night. David finds out, doesn't like this news, goes against everything that he stood for, so he has these assassins killed himself. David then is anointed and appointed the king over all of Israel, including the areas that he didn't previously have. Now, 15 years later, after Samuel anoints him as king. 
first right out of the gate, he takes over the city of Jerusalem, kicks out those inhabitants, then leads the army against the people of the Philistine army. And David is triumphant and victorious. And why? What's the difference? Is because Saul based it all on himself, his ego, his reputation. David instead depends on the spirit of God to lead and direct. And David is victorious. Whoo! We made it. Did we make it under? Nope. Almost two minutes, but still, that's a lot. About seven to nine years of David's life, we did pretty good, covering a lot of bases there. Now, it brings us to today. David is the king of Israel. And this transition of power is talked about for generations. In the book of Acts, it records uh, some of God's thoughts on this. It says, after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do anything and everything I want him to do. David is a man that pursues God with everything that he is. He's a man who wants his heart to beat in rhythm with that of God. And when he becomes king, he wants his whole kingdom to know that God is at the center of this kingdom. And one of the things that he does is he moves the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant, for those that don't remember, uh, you can read about it in the stories of Moses or when you're watching Indiana Jones, you can also learn about it a bit. But it's this chest of wood and it's gold plated and it's covered with these angels and all of these things and it represented the presence of God. And inside of this chest was uh, a copy of the Ten Commandments. It, there was Aaron, the chief priest. His, his wooden staff was there. A jar of manna that had come from heaven was there. And, and this was a, a holy container. When they went into battle, the people of Israel took it with them. And it was symbolic of the presence of God coming with them into battle. When they navigated the exodus out of Egypt and they constructed it, and wherever they went through the desert, they took it with them. Because wherever they went, the Spirit of God, the presence of God was with them. And this box was holy. Like, you couldn't touch it. You, you weren't allowed to just pick it up and take it with you. It had these ringlets, these golden ringlets on it. And you would put these, these golden pipes, these golden tubes and, and, and poles through it. And the priests would actually lift it up onto their shoulders and they would carry it with them that way. That's how you transported the ark because to touch it would be to desecrate it. Now, I don't know about you. I've been to Washington, D.C. I've seen some amazing things that are very special and valuable to our country's history, one of the things that I saw was the Declaration of Independence. And with that, man, you have this awesome, very special, valuable piece of paper, but they take extraordinary and extravagant precautions to protect it, right? It's under bulletproof glass, and it's got all these things to monitor it and preserve it and keep it safe. And it's so that for years to come, people will experience it. They will see it and, and show that this is valuable. They don't just transport it by rolling it up with a rubber band and sticking it in a duffel bag. They don't want greasy fingers grabbing it. And this extravagant system of preservation and protection and setting this document apart shows how special it really is. It's special to our nation's history. Well, for the people of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant was very special. It symbolized the presence of Yahweh and, and his presence with them. And so it was valuable, it was special, and yet under Saul's leadership, the Philistines hijacked it. They took it after a defeat in battle. The Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant into their territory. So when David defeats the Philistines, as we just said rapid fire wise, he got back into their own custody, the Ark of the Covenant. And as he's moving it into Jerusalem, he's symbolizing that the priesthood is going to move into Jerusalem, that the hub of worship is going to move into Jerusalem, that the kingdom that God has appointed him over is going to centralize and pivot around the kingdom of God, that the presence of God is at the soul and the, the center of his kingdom. 
And it looks like it appears that David is all in. As that passage out of Acts says, he is chasing after God's heart. He is committed to God. And yet in the midst of moving and relocating the ark, we'll see a moment of compromise. And with that compromise comes consequence. And this is going to rattle David's cage a bit. We're going to jump in at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3 through 7. And it's what we're going to read today. Go ahead and you can turn in your Bibles. I'm not going to read it today. We're going to throw it to the T and Hara family. And uh, welcome them in to read this passage for us. Hi, Hub City. Dennis here. I'm going to be reading a couple passages for the message today. The first is 2 Samuel 6, 3-7. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Well, thank you for sharing, and it's good to see you guys uh, today. Now, that is one crazy story, right? They're moving the Ark of the Covenant, and it stumbles. Guy reaches out, touches it, boom, struck dead, right, in an instant. That's a crazy story. And, and yet, in that moment, did you see the compromise? I hope you did. The Ark is not being carried as it was properly supposed to be carried. It was on a cart. Why is it on a cart? It's not supposed to be. The priest is supposed to be hoisting it up on their shoulders. And we don't know why David compromises here. Maybe it's out of convenience because a cart's always just easier. Maybe he didn't know any better. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he was following the example of the Philistines. Who knows why? But all we do know is he did compromise. And with that compromise comes consequence. David is in this moment getting what he paid for. He was all in on, I'm following after God and we're making God the center of our kingdom. And yet he's cutting corners. He's settling on things. We compromise in our faith. We, we settle, we get comfortable, we strive for convenience, and we put Jesus on a cart of compromise. And when we do that, it's going to come with consequences. We have to understand that, that that heart of compromise in us is going to lead to consequences. How do we compromise on Jesus? How do we put him on a cart? One is we, we create a buffet Christianity. We look at the teachings and the life of Jesus, and we pick and choose what we like, like at a buffet. Oh, I like some of this. I like some of that. Oh, I'm avoiding those things. Nope, not going there. And we pick and choose what we want to accept and what we want to live by. It's a buffet Christianity. Or a blurred Christianity where we take the teachings of Christ and we blur them together with other ideologies, other religions, other beliefs, other viewpoints. And we put on par with the, you know, the teachings of Jesus. We might put the Beatitudes on, on par with a fortune cookie or a horoscope or the teachings of, of some current celebrity on Instagram. We, we blur these things and we allow them to define and teach and guide our life with the same authority. We've created this blurred Christianity. Another way we compromise is part-time Christianity. We give God a time slot. You get my time from here. You get my focus in this amount of time. You get my resources. You get my life. But it's part-time. I'm not full-time. I'm part-time. Because the rest of my time is my time. And what that ends up doing is creating a God that has to contend with you. What about a two-faced Christianity where we have a hypocrisy 
where our actions don't match our words, where our actions don't match the teachings of Jesus or our words don't match the actions of Jesus. We live two-faced in our life. And we follow this convoluted image of who Jesus is. Ultimately, it's going to affect all the different areas of our life because our beliefs lead to values. And those values create action. And those actions turn into habits. It begins this rabbit trail. So a compromised view of who Jesus is is going to lead to a compromised view of every area of your life. Compromised Jesus leads to a compromised marriage. Compromised view of Jesus leads to a compromised view of my sexuality. Compromised view of my time. View of my job. Compromised view of my resources, my habits, my entertainment, my everything. Compromise here, you're going to compromise there. And when we're going around along the road, we put all these things on the cart and we're going to hit some bumps. And what are you and I going to do? We're going to try to stabilize and fix those things on our own. We're going to reach out and try to fix it on our own or fix it with some convoluted Jesus and compromised Jesus that we've got. And it's not going to work. It's going to lead to consequences. Take marriage, for example. We can allow Jesus to define what our marriage relationship is, all about covenant and, and, and exclusivity and unity and selflessness and all the things that Jesus defines marriage to be about, right? And we see that in, in the scripture. Or we come at it from a convoluted way, a compromised way. And when that gets compromised, well, I'm going to cut corners. I'm going to settle. I'm going to go for what's easy or convenient or comfortable or self-gratifying. And so you begin to find yourself acting different. You begin to flirt with somebody else at work and develop what they call the work spouse. You begin to look at other people or images or things on your phone and, and find intimacy in other ways other than your spouse. You begin to comment and have no problem dialoguing about the attractiveness of other people, even in front of your spouse. Not concerned about their insecurity and their image and their body image and how they feel. Because it's not about that for you. It's about you. And then we end up sneaking around behind their back. We lead all of this behavior then leads to consequences. And what consequences do we see? We've begun to compromise here, but the consequences are we, we, we've created distrust in our marriages. We've created division in our marriages, conflict, infidelity, separation, even divorce. And we hurt people in the process of that. We get hurt in the process of that. And that's just one example. You could take any facet of life and break it out that way where we see compromise leads to consequence. But this heart of compromise, I, I, we have to understand too, I, I, what I'm not trying to say is that just if you do all the right things, you, you will avoid difficulty. There are bad things that happen. Some of you right now are going through conflict and pain and suffering and difficulty, and it's not your fault. You've been trying to do the right thing. So please don't mishear what I'm saying, but this story of David challenges us to say, well, like David, am I all in? Some of us say, yeah, oh, I'm all about Jesus. I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Christian. I'm all in on Jesus. And it's a moment for us to pause and really self-evaluate. Am I truly all in? Or have I cut corners? Am I compromising in areas? Because a heart of compromise leads to consequence, but the other side of that is a heart of commitment wants to carry out God's mission. It desires to carry out the mission of God. 
And we see this in David's story. In 1 Chronicles 15, it gives us a glimpse into this aha moment that David has. Because when Uzzah's struck dead, David kind of freaks out. Like, is God against me? Is God for me? I don't know. Let's move the thing over here and let's deal with it, right? And, and that's a crazy moment. And, and David is freaking out. But then in the course of time, uh, three months, he learns the priests were supposed to take care of the cart differently. We were supposed to honor the ark differently because as we honor the ark, we're truly honoring God. That's important for David to learn. And that's what I admire about David is that he has blind spots, he has flaws, he has trials that he goes through, but he learns from them. He's still teachable. He's willing to to grow from that and admit his mistakes. And we're going to jump back into the 2 Samuel text in chapter 6. And as we do, I want you to see the difference in his commitment. See the difference in that commitment level. Because I said, a heart of commitment desires to do God's mission. Well, what does commitment look like? Let's take a look. Let's throw it back to the T and Horace to read this next section. 2 Samuel 6, 13 through 15. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for sharing today, and it's good to see you. And uh, as we look at this passage, did you see David's commitment? He has a level of commitment that affects three areas of his life. One is his actions. The second is his appearance. And the third is his attitude. It affects his actions. The author explicitly says, now they are carrying the ark, right? And even across that processional and that parade, what does David do? He stops and offers a sacrifice to God. His actions are showing the mission of God. He is there to honor God with everything that he does. Secondly, his appearance. David is not wearing his crown, holding a scepter, has this giant train of a, of, a, of a cape going behind him. What is he wearing? He's wearing this priestly garment, this ephod. And what that symbolizes is that he sees himself and wants to communicate and represent, I am a servant of God. I'm not here to rule over all of you. I am here to serve because God is the one leading all of us. And then thirdly, his attitude. Did you notice the joy and the music and the celebration and this is a parade of joy because they're doing what God wants because they're putting God at the center of their kingdom and the center of their life and they're doing it right. And that is not a bummer. How many of us, right, at different times we view obedience as a bad thing? We view it as a drag and a bummer and we're just like, no, oh, I'm gonna do the right thing. No, David is excited and he's triumphant. He's playing his music and doing his thing. <clears throat> this permeates into all of his life into what he can feel, what you can see, what you can do. Man, that's what David is all committed to. And this is so much more than just a rah, rah, rah commitment. This is so much more than just a, I raised my hand and I'm following Jesus. This is, I'm all in. And when we commit our lives to Jesus, how many times does Jesus get all of us? When you commit your life to Jesus, does he get the whole you? a good question to ponder because that's what he wants he wants all of us and what we're committing to is so much more than ourselves because david models for us we're committing to something bigger than ourselves we're committing to the mission of god we're committed to carrying out 
God's mission. Pun intended there, carrying out with the whole Ark of the Covenant thing. But we are committed to carrying out God's mission. David models that for us. Even Jesus, when you look at Jesus and his life and his teaching, he was all about fulfilling the work of his heavenly father. That's why he came to earth. In John chapter 4, he talks about this. John 4, 34 and 35. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Jesus is responding to the disciples who are checking in on him to see if he's hungry. And he says, the thing that sustains me, my food, is to do the work that my heavenly father has called me to do. Jesus is committed to carrying out the work of the father. And he models that for us, that we need to be committed to that. In fact, did you even see there in verse 35, he says, open your eyes, look at the fields, look at the harvest. That's what you're called to. That's what you're committed to. We're not being committed to just gathering in our church or feeling warm and fuzzy as a Christian or whatever simplification. We sometimes boil it all downward where it's inward focused and what I get out of my faith. We're committing to Jesus so that we can carry out the mission that God has given us, the mission of God. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're all about. And, and, and I think it's a great reminder that today is not a message about do the right thing and life will be better. Do the right thing and you'll be hashtag blessed. Just do all the right spiritual disciplines and stay on the straight and narrow and God's gonna avoid difficulty and consequence. No, it's not about that. And this is not about doing the right thing so that God will love you more. If that's what you're hearing, you're missing it because I would tell you, God loves you. He loves you to the max already. Today's message is how do you respond to that love? Do I respond with a heart of compromise or do I respond with a heart of commitment? That's up to you. That's the choice that we get. And what we are committing to is, again, so much bigger than us, so much bigger than ourselves and our bubbles. It's about committing to what does God want to do? What does God want to do in Skagit County? Not what do you want to do? What do I want to do? What does the government want us to do? When was the last time we asked that question? What does God want to do in Skagit County? What does he want to do in Burlington and Cedro and Mount Vernon and all across our community? We're so busy sometimes fulfilling our own agendas and our own plans and our own desires and seeing those things come to pass. When was the last time we stopped to say, God, I am committed to you and I'm committed to what you want to do. I'm committed to the message that needs to go out to our community, a message of life and of hope, a message that they are searching for and listening for, but the church has been dormant and quiet on. We need to go out and be sharing that message. We need to be committed to doing what God wants us to do, to care for those that are in need. People are hurting right now. People are lost. They're confused. They're in pain. What are we doing to care for them? What are we doing to notice those that have been forgotten? What are we doing to notice those who have been overlooked, to accept those who have been outcast? I believe those are things that God wants us to do. But what does that look like? What do we do to live that out? What are we committed to? So much more than ourselves. We are committed to doing what God wants to do in Skagit County. And if we're going to be people who chase God with all of our heart, you know, our word for the year is pursuit. 
If we're pursuing God with our whole being, if we're being people who chase after God, well, then our kingdom better revolve around him. Our lives better revolve around him. And what we are committed to revolves around him, not ourselves. I'm tired of being, I don't know about you, I am tired of being and I don't want to be a person who is half-heartedly picking and choosing part-time blurring lines with a compromised, misconstrued, convoluted Christianity. I want to be all in on who Jesus is. I want to be all in on the work that God wants to do in your home and in your life. I want to be all in on what God wants to do in our community and in our church. I want to be somebody who does what God would do, who says what God would say, and who loves what God would love. Let's pray. Jesus, right now, we just we come to you and, and ask You continue to open our eyes and our perspectives. Help us to see you in the midst of this season and this time. And I pray, God, that we would be people who are truly committed to you. Even right now, if we have not been committed to you, we've been more committed to ourselves or to other things, even some right now that may just make a a, a dedication, a, a choice, and they may choose to commit their lives to you and say, Jesus, be the king of my life. Be the center of my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of the detours. Let's go from this point forward. Help us to better understand what it means to be committed to you and be committed to carrying out your work through your church and your your world. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. For more information, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.